0: Welcome to the Hello Mornings podcast, where my goal is to inspire and equip you to build a grace-filled, life-giving morning routine. My name is Kat Lee, and today we're talking with author and podcaster Emily P. Freeman about decision-making. Did you know that we make over 35,000 decisions every single day? It can be overwhelming. So how do we start our day with good decisions, and how can we make better ones? How do we know what our next right thing is? Well, that's what Emily and I are talking about in today's episode. Let's get started. Hey, Emily, welcome to the Hello Mornings podcast. Well, hello. It's so good to be here. I am super excited to have you here. I've been very much enjoying your podcast, The Next Right Thing, and the book and everything. So I feel like what you're talking about in this season is so perfect for what we do at Hello Mornings. But I know there's probably gonna be a couple people, one or two maybe, who have not (laughs) heard about you and the next right thing. So can you just give us a quick little intro to you and then what the next right thing is about?
1: Sure, well, just kind of uh, main big details. I live in North Carolina and I'm married to my husband, John, for about 17, going on 18 years. We have twin girls who are 15. I cannot even believe it. (sighs) And our son is twelve, so that's first year of middle school this year, and first year of high school for the girls this year. So that's that's my personal life, which is always full and adventurous. Um, but I've been writing for I guess it's been about ten years as far as writing professionally. Now I have four books, and the next right thing is my fifth book. And I always, um, you know, I've kind of made it my job to. Um, to sort of try to write through right into new metaphors for people to live by. Um, and I really love hanging out at the intersection of faith and creativity. Um, and as far as you know, the next right thing you asked about that, and really, the next right thing was really born out of a decision I was trying to make about returning to school um, as an as an adult. So I'm getting my master's degree right now in Christian spiritual formation and leadership. And while I was trying to make that decision um, on the inside, I noticed that that indecision that I was trying to decide which thing should I do, you know, should I go, should I not that indecision held a lot of power for me. And so I started taking notes on that for myself and recognized how freeing it was for me to simply do my next right thing, especially when I didn't know big picture what my decision was going to be. So all I could do was do the next thing I did know, which was always just the next right thing.
0: I love that. You know, that poem that I think is relatively famous. You you reference it in your book, and I love that you actually researched who the actual author is, because it's yeah. <laughs> usually listed as anonymous. Yes. That poem, I had that printed up and, and right above my desk for a season when I just felt very overwhelmed, kind of in general, with all of the things and all of the decisions. And just that concept of the next right thing is so freeing and peaceful. So I'm excited to dive into this today with you. So that decision about grad school, I'd love to just chat about that for for a brief second because you've already gone into your life a little bit. You know, you have three kids and as someone who has two high school girls, I know that that is as challenging as the toddler season because you have to be available for their downloads and discussions and all that sort of stuff. So I know that your life is full. Yes. And adding grad school on top of that, what prompted you to want to do that and how did you actually go ahead and make that decision?
1: Well, I love that you brought up the schedule thing, the the um, toddler versus high school, because it's it's hard in a different way. And now their needs, instead of coming up early in the day and like mm-hmm. at, at seven o'clock bedtime, it, now it's like late at night. Yes. Like everything's flipped on its head in a way, schedule wise. And man, I am not my great best at 1130 at night <laughs> want to <I> have conversations. <laughs> so it ha- it's a challenge for me. But It's such a great question, Kat, because I think some of the most difficult decisions are usually not we're trying to decide between something good and something bad. That's an easy decision. The most difficult decisions and the ones that cause me the most trouble are when I'm trying to decide between two good things when there's no clear right answer. When I was considering going to school, um, mainly it was because there was just a lot of things about spiritual formation and about the Bible and about, um, you know, living missionally in the world and the incarnation and living incarnationally that were so fascinating to me that I wanted to know more about. And I was reading some of these books that were required for some of these um, programs anyway. And so my husband, John, and I talked a lot about, you know, what might it look like for me to return to school and, you know, maybe pursue, um, first I thought just maybe a certificate in something. But then as I started looking at some of the requirements for some of these certificate programs, they were almost equal to a two year master's program work wise. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to do so, you know, we've talked through some of those details. During that that those conversations I had with my husband, honestly, secretly, what I wished he would have said was, you know, Emily, I just don't think it's a good idea. I just mm-hmm. don't think it's a good time for our family. That would have made this decision so much easier. Cause then I could have just been like, well, it's not good. And but I think what made this decision so difficult, and maybe some people can relate, is that I was invited, and this is a good thing, to tap into my own desire. And while I think that's a gift and a great privilege that many people do not have the option to do. It can also be extremely scary. Um, and, uh, it's something where we have to tap into a part of ourselves that honestly, many of us just don't always have the vocabulary for, or don't have the ability to access. And in some ways, especially at this stage in my life as a mom, um, it can feel like a selfish endeavor a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But one thing I've discovered through this process and through lots of conversations with my husband and lots of prayer and time and silence and lots of walks um, with my friend Jesus is recognizing um, that what I want is what I want, whether I admit it or not. And if I refuse to admit what I most deeply long for, then it will come out one way or another. And if I don't face it and and bring it into God's presence— it could come out sideways in ways I don't intend. And I think a lot of us can relate to that when we have a desire that we don't name and then we get irritable, resentful, mm-hmm. scared, anxious, can't sleep at night. So these are things that our bodies, like it's like our bodies manifest our desire when we refuse to admit what they are. And there's a big difference between admitting my desire and demanding to get what I want. Cause I really did desire to go to school and to learn some of these things. Um, but I, but I didn't get to a place where I demanded it. I think that's a different posture. Um, sometimes I think we confuse desire with demand, and we think, "Well, it's selfish to admit what you want." No, it's just selfish to demand what you want. But admitting what you want is, is, is in the presence of God, is a great gift. Not only to, um, not only to me, but to my family, because it, it then we we have all the facts out on the table, and we know what we're looking at. So I think for me, it was really this um, school decision was really a process of. Um, sort of paying attention to what makes me come alive, communicating with my husband, talking with my friend Jesus, and taking my next right step, even when I wasn't sure what the final step was going to be. I still don't know exactly why I'm going to school. I don't really have an end game, which in our Western world and culture is really difficult sometimes for us to make decisions when we don't know exactly why. But I think in in the kingdom of God, He often invites us into things and He doesn't always explain exactly where we're going. And I think that's okay.
0: Oh, absolutely. I remember hearing Louis Giglio, I think once saying how God wants us to wrap our hands around his neck instead of sticking our hands into his pocket. And so often we do that when we we want a plan, we want to know what's next and then what's next and then what's next, because then we can, you know, I think you referenced this in your, in your book, you know, that can become then the idol instead of yes. God. And and that's not what he wants. He wants it to be a journey with him. And I, I love what you said there, too, about how that desire can kind of come out sideways. You know, how true is this even in our even in our smallest desires? Like, where do we want to go for lunch on Sunday? If we don't say it, then we're going to kind of make a comment about, oh, yeah, well, I don't really like pizza. Or, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it's so obvious in so many small ways. how If we don't just acknowledge that desire, then it's probably going to come out one way or the other. So I love that concept of just acknowledging it, and then working through it from there. Now, I know so many women who are listening to this podcast are in some sort of season of transition, whether it's becoming a new mom, whether it is you know a husband in transition and work, whether they've just moved or whatever. And there can be this low-level anxiety that we wake up with. And we can start our day just with all these questions and all these thoughts, and it's hard to just start our day with a right focus and a right perspective. And I love something that you talk about in the book called soul minimalism. Tell us a little bit about what that is and how we can incorporate that into our mornings.
1: It's such a great point that you bring up for people who are in times of transition, because even for the most decisive among us, if we're in the midst of a transition, a new baby, a new marriage, the loss of someone who we love, even the most decisive among us can become a weird version of ourselves where we just can't make one more tiny decision. Mm -hmm. And that's what we call decision, decision fatigue when it's just, you've been, maybe you've been having to make all these different decisions about all these different things and it can cause sleep loss and then it can carry over into your morning. Um, and what I've sort of been discovering in my own life. And as I talk with other women and other people about this decision-making process is we tend to focus and make it about the decision, but really it's about the life. And the life begins in the morning. And I, I think I love what you talk about with um hello mornings and the morning routine and sort of waking up um, for your life. Isn't that how you say mm-hmm. wake up for your life, not to your life? And I love that because um, we want to be people who have a life, have life habits that support soulful decision making. Because in order to make soulful decisions, we want to have a life that supports that. And so that begins in the morning. And one way I do talk about that is becoming a soul minimalist, which might sound weird, but I think we all know what minimalism is, you know, just in our house and sort of decluttering and having the space for the things we love and the things that we value in our homes um but often we don't do that on a regular basis and so we have this influx of you know like when school starts or at christmas we have this influx of stuff that comes into our homes and then like you know spring comes around and we have this mad like we're taking the weekend everyone <laughs> get a trash bag <laughs> and you know you just sort of lose it lose <laughs> your eleven and um I think the same thing can happen on the level of our souls. We are always receiving input all day long. We receive input, relational input, um, personal uh, input. We, we have interactions with people. We have, you know, advertisements and podcasts and Instagram and all the things that we take in. Um, but we don't have a regular practice. Not Some of us do, but... Typically, we aren't taught what it looks like to have a regular practice of output or releasing or letting go. And what I've discovered is for me, the best time to do that is um, either in the evening routine and in the evening time, looking back on the day, as well as in the morning. Um, And so the way I have found that, you know, just the way that, you know, decluttering uh, the house, we do that. But the way to declutter my soul, which sounds kind of funny, but if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense the method of that is really stillness and silence. And so one practice that I do fairly often is in the morning, you know, I will get a coffee or whatever, and I'll sit in my particular chair I have in the morning and I'll set my phone, um, for a certain period of time. Honestly, usually it's just about five minutes and I'll set the timer for five minutes and I will, um, simply sit in the presence of God without an agenda. Sometimes I'll open with a a short prayer, um, but then I'll just, I'll sit and I'll listen to nothing. The nothingness of the morning, this usually has to happen before anybody wakes up, just FYI, (laughs) in case that wasn't clear. Um, And just, and and I, nothing magical happens during this time. But what does happen is I, what and that will be happens for everybody, really, as you start to remember the, the things that happened the day before, right? Mm-hmm. Like the fight you had with the person, and you can do this any time of day, but I think it makes sense to do in the morning as you start different interactions that we had different thoughts that we had that sort of stick to our souls, but we might not realize it. it but it just it just sort of becomes normal, like you just carry around all these interactions and all this input. But it In the process of being silent and sitting with our friend Jesus, there's an action that can take place even though you're sitting still. And it's an action of letting go on the inside and just sort of releasing these cares into your father's hands. When the timer goes off, again, like I said, it's not like a huge decision has been made. It's not like I now feel so light as a feather, but there is a posture shift. There is a remembering that, okay, I I can, there are some things I need for today but a lot of those resentments and fears and anxieties of yesterday, those are things I don't need. And it's in silence and stillness that I can begin to let them go.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and, it's and, al- and it's almost like God, you know, we're letting God be God. We're saying, okay, it's maybe my tendency to wake up and just dive into doing all the things. But if I can just stop and take a deep breath and sit for a few minutes and not have an agenda and not try to work out my plan and not try to figure out my problems, but just sit with the Lord. We're just letting him be him. And it is so amazing to me, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well, that sometimes in just those seasons of just being still, once, you know, maybe during that, those moments, or maybe as soon as, you know, you you get back into your regular life, the thing that you need to do all along suddenly comes to you.
1: Yes, it suddenly comes to you and it's like the the decluttering experts like the actual ones for your house they they the best advice always many times is to do it as you go along like don't mm-hmm. wait for it to build up so much and i think the same goes when we talk about our spiritual lives is to do this all along 5 minutes a day rather than wait 3 months And then we need, we feel like we need a weekend away or a week away or a month away, you know, in order to sort of get to a place where we feel like a sane person who's not losing our minds. But you're right. I do think it is in those small moments of silence where maybe the big picture doesn't become clear, but perhaps our next thing becomes clearer. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. And I love that visual that you give of comparing it to house decluttering, because Honestly, I don't know that I ever really thought through that. Just having that that visual picture of we have all this stuff coming into our souls, into our lives, into our heads, all these decisions that we need to make and things that we need to do. But how often do we take the time just to let that filter through, to get rid of stuff, to let go of stuff? I was, you know, as I, as I was prepping for this interview, I was thinking of um, uh, an activity that someone I learned from someone online but I totally don't know how to say her name. I know how to say her first name. Do you know Asherita? and then her last name I think it's like Choo Choo. It's like C I U C I U. I have no idea how to say it. I have no idea how to say it. <laughs> okay, her, her first name is Asherita. Anyway, she teaches this idea where you wake up in the morning and you kind of, um, kind of make a fist with your hands, and then you turn your hands over and you're like, "Just God, I just release, you know, these things that are weighing on my heart today." And it's just sort of a, a might seem kind of silly, but just the physical action of just kind of releasing and opening your hands the things that are weighing heavy on you, those big decisions or whatever. And then she talks about then turning your hands over and just sitting and being ready to listen to whatever God has to say. And I found that practice to be so freeing. It's not exactly what you're talking about, but I think it's a lot the same concept. And it it ties into the idea of just letting go of all the clutter that we have in our souls and then just receiving from the Lord, because he knows just the right things to do and the right next steps that he wants us to take. Um, So I'm so curious, as you researched for this book, I I know you learned a lot about decision making and decision fatigue. Did you ever come across that Israeli judge study?
1: Oh, tell me more words.
0: Okay, so there was this study done by Israeli judges, Um, I, I guess they were like going through the it was like a parole court or something. And based on the time of day that the convict would go through the parole court would determine the percentage of likelihood that he would actually get parole. So in the morning, the parole judges were much more likely to, you know, give them parole. Then they would it would sink down to a lower and lower percentage until lunchtime. Then after lunchtime, then it would go back up and they'd be more likely to get parole parole. But then as it went down towards dinner time, they'd be much less likely to get parole. And they evaluated this according to, you know, the, the same, you know, they tried to match everything up, the conviction, the people, whatever it was. And it was just so fascinating to me because we tend toward no, when we tend toward fear, I think when we get tired, which is kind of what I think this this study revealed, that as the, the day wore on, as they were tired, they would just be like, no, you know, as moms, Right, are, are you like this, or is it just me? Yeah.
1: no, no, yeah, gotcha. <laughs>
0: like you look like you're gonna ask you a question, no, right. <laughs> whatever it is, no, yeah, cut it off,
1: yeah, I need to eat lunch, right, yeah.
0: so do you have any do you have any uh, ideas or tips? how do we work through that when we're tired and we need need
1: to make a decision? How can we make a right one? It's such a great question, and I think my best answer is. Um, it's sort of, it's like the best time to make a decision is before there's a decision to be made. Mm. Um, but you know, the next best time is after you've made the wrong one and then you realize for the next time you want to make a different one. Um, and so I don't know if I have great advice for like in the moment when you're just a tired place, but I will say, um, I'm a big advocate for designing a rhythm of life that supports soulful decision making. I really think there's something to having a morning routine and an evening routine that we can depend on that help us to be sane people, that help us to be fully ourselves, that remind us what our values are. And that's not to say we won't get tired around lunch and dinner time or in the witching hour or all the different times as moms that we want to, you know go to target our Hawaiian vacation all by ourselves. You know, (laughs) like, of course, that's still going to be our realities. However, I have found in my own life that when I have a dependable, even small, simple morning routine, and an evening routine that I can um, depend on and look forward to, that it's a, it's a a little bit easier in those moments of craziness um, to be a little more flexible or to be a little more present. Um, And who knows what that moment requires from me. But I do think that um, designing our lives in such a way that we remember God's presence with us in every ordinary moment, that we remember that no matter what, my friend James Brian Smith always says that I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights, and I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. His kingdom is not in trouble and neither am I. And to remember those words... When I'm in the midst of making the dinner and someone needs all the things, and it feels like on a small scale, everything is falling apart, um, but I can remember that in Christ all things are held together, including me, including these children, and that I can ask him he's i mean Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived, um and he lives in me so When we're aware, and I think those routines, and the reason I keep going back to those is that rhythm of life that we can depend upon. That's when we'll. That's those are our chances to remember beginning of the day, end of the day, to remember who we are, that we live in His strong and unshakable kingdom. So that in the in the middle, Mm -hmm. um, we can call that back to mind and live like it's true.
0: It's kind of like an athlete. You know, they're do they're practicing. And what they do in practice determines those, you know, that last second shot or that last second play. Um, It's exactly like that. So you talk a little bit about that in your book. And actually, at the end of each chapter, you have a prayer and a practice. Tell us a little bit about what that is to you and how that's helped you to to make the best possible decisions.
1: Well, you know, that sort of came out from came out from that sort of started on the next right thing podcast. So every episode that I do I, weekly episodes of the next right thing, um, you know, there are 10 minutes, 15 minute episodes, very short. And I, I always like to end with some type of blessing or benediction or prayer, um, as well as a simple action somewhere in the episode. It's not always at the end, but, and so when I wrote the book, um, I, I loved that idea so much because it is a simple, it's like, let me tell a story. Let me offer a prayer and then let's have one action that we can practice today. And so that felt like a tangible, um, way to also sort of design the book so that, you know, I love the idea of somebody reading one of the short chapters and then feeling blessed a little bit of a benediction and then maybe be able to put the book down and and do something that moves toward soulful decision-making moves them towards that, um, And I think there is something, you know, I used to be sort of shy or not shy. I used to be, uh, not against, I can't think of the word cat, but I didn't love the idea of spiritual disciplines. And I think it was because when I was in high school and college, I made it so legalistic. Like I was the worst and just thought that, you know, I was earning my, I knew that I was saved by grace, but like everything after that felt like I had to earn. Um, and so a lot of the practices, um, you know, that we learn in church or, you know, some of us don't learn in church, but the different things that we hear to bring us closer to God or to help us grow in our walk with God. Um, I sort of treated them like, if I did them, then I was good to go and great. And it was a performance thing. And if I didn't do them, then I felt shame. It was this constant back and forth. And as I've grown, um, and I had to go away from those for a little while, I had to sort of put the quote unquote spiritual disciplines on the back burner so that I could really get to know God, um, in a way that felt free. And now I recognize that, um, these disciplines are not, um, they're not about, it doesn't mean we're not trying. So we still have to put forth effort in our walk with God, but, We are not earning something. We're not doing these to earn something. Um, It's like you said, they're practices. And the point of every spiritual practice is union with God. And if something that I'm doing, if I'm practicing my life in a way that is not bringing me into the path of God in a way that feels life-giving, then that is not something that that I ought to be doing. Even if for someone else, that's a life-giving practice for them. I think it's really my responsibility as an apprentice of Jesus to pay attention to those practices that bring me into his presence and that um, uh, foster union with him. And so that's sort of what these practices, you know, there's 24 in the book because there's 24 chapters and they're simple. Like one practice is. Practice saying I don't know today, (laughs) because I think so many times we're afraid to be a beginner, and we—that is our next right thing—is to be a beginner. You start a new job, you you just—you know—you're a new stepmom. You have these children now, and you have never been a mom before. You don't know how to do this. That's okay. Practice saying I don't know. I think we just—I don't know if it's an American thing or if it's just a human thing—that we think that now that we're grown ups we're supposed to know everything um but to embrace our role as a beginner in whatever area that might be it could be that i used to be able to exercise a certain kind of way and now my body's changed and my lifestyle's changed and i can't do it that way anymore but that means i'm a beginner and it's okay um so just that simple practice of admitting i don't know something and seeing how that feels in my life and in my day you know, these are not, um, these are not necessarily like, you know, fast for a week. And, you know, it's not these types of practices, but, but, but they always hopefully will point us back to Jesus.
0: Well, and it makes
1: them doable. It's not daunting. You you know, it's
0: not like you said, fasting for a week, which immediately (laughs) I'm like, eh, that's
1: that's probably not great.
0: (laughs) Not so so sure. I'm called to that. Not so sure. That brings me into the path of Jesus. Um, (laughs) kidding. It can this for anybody who's yeah. Um, so one thing that I, I like that you mentioned there and that you, you also mentioned in the book is the importance of and I don't remember the exact wording, um, the importance of having a correct view of God and how our view of God impacts um our our decisions and, and how we approach him. Um do you remember what I'm talking about? I, I don't yes. exactly remember what chapter it is. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Because I remember that really really struck me. And maybe there was a really great Dallas Willard quote, not that I expect you to have your book memorized, but you did pull out that other quote a few minutes ago. And I was super impressed.
1: Oh, well, Dallas Willard, I've memorized a lot of him. And one thing Dallas Willard says is never believe anything bad about God. And you know, when you think about it, first glance, you think, yeah, okay, never believe anything bad about God. But then you pay attention to how we actually live our lives. And however, the narrative that we have about God, will always impact our decisions. If we believe that God is distant, then we're going to feel alone and untethered in our decision-making. We just will. If I believe that God's mad at me, then I'm going to be afraid of making a wrong move in fear that he's going to snap and get even more angry. If I think that God is wimpy, then when I make my decisions, I think that maybe I can manipulate him into kind of making things happen the way I want them to happen. Um, if I think he's indifferent, then I'm going to believe that, you know what, he probably doesn't care what happens one way or the other. I think a lot of us think that God is a cosmic trickster and that he has a plan that he will not reveal to us unless we, um, follow, you know, say the magic word and follow the maze and get the right answer and spin around three times. I I think that obviously me saying that it's ridiculous, of course, but when we're making our decisions, you know, I asked on Instagram um, about a year ago, what was the most difficult part of making decisions? And I got hundreds and hundreds of responses. And by far the number one um, thing that people said was the most difficult part was their fear of making the wrong decision. And I think you can trace that back in many ways, especially if you're a believer to um, not just making the wrong decision, but making the decision that God doesn't want me to make. Mm. And I just you know, there's a lot to that. There's a lot of theology in there. I know that we probably won't get into, but, but I just want to say that, um, we can trust that we don't have, we don't ever have to believe anything bad about God, that God is for us and he won't let us miss it. And he is simply inviting us to walk with him. It's the way Jesus walked with his father on earth. He really lived the next right thing life. I don't know that he sort of had this, he knew in general, what was going to happen, but I think he, I think Jesus gave up his right to kind of know every detail. I think he responded to the people in his uh in his life who came into and we see that by the way that he walked through crowds, by the way that it looked like I mean his agenda looked kind of frenetic sometimes like <laughs> What do you mean you're stopping for the bleeding woman? There's a little girl who's dying. What do you mean? This is ridiculous. This is not what any like project manager would ever, (laughs) you know, like, no, we have a plan, but that's just not how he lived his life. And it baffles my mind, but it really is a next right thing. Jesus didn't, we we would never say that Jesus missed his calling, Mm. but in some ways it looks like, like, wait. You mean you're coming as a baby and not as a king on a throne? You mean you're not a warrior? Like, this isn't exactly how we thought it was going to go. But yet, this was exactly how God had it go. And and God was with him every step. God the Father was with him every step.
0: I love how you talk about how Jesus lived a next right thing life and how he m- kind of modeled that in the Gospels. I, I don't think I'd ever actually thought about that before, that the things that he would asked people to do immediately after doing some incredible miracle were not earth-shattering things
1: right yeah like the and like the when when he did heal Jairus's daughter he told her parents Jairus and his wife to make her lunch give her something to eat when he met the woman at the well and they had this long conversation um he he basically said if i remember right go and tell no one like it was <laughs> It, it was like he, I mean, he basically told her what not to do. It wasn't even like, <laughs> so it's just like, wait, it doesn't seem like the types of things that he, he should be saying. And yet these are the things that he said. And it was very much like a next thing. Um, It was really never, it, I, I can't think of a time when it was a five-year plan. He did talk to the, you know, disciples about what was coming, but they didn't have a clue what he was talking about. So I don't even know if that counts, you know? um. So it really is a fascinating study when you look at it through that next right thing lens. Mm -hmm. And maybe too, that
0: God isn't always asking us to do some huge thing, you know, to go be a missionary in Africa or whatever. The next thing that he wants us to do might be just to go say hi to our neighbor for the first time in seven years, or to pick up the phone and place a phone call. And I love how you point out that he kind of modeled that in the gospels. He did big things through small decisions, a kid packing a lunch and taking it. To go hear Jesus, um, so as we think through just the, the the concept of making right decisions, what I kind of maybe hear you say is that knowing God's character is maybe central to making the decisions that we're hoping to make. Because if we have that you know skewed narrative of who God is, that skewed perspective, that's going to impact the decisions that we make. And so it kind of, I don't know, it feels so peaceful to me that, okay, if I wake up and I just spend some time with Jesus, if I sit in his presence, if I read the word and know his character, those are sort of the practices that are going to help me as I'm making decisions throughout the day and throughout the year and throughout my life. Um, So you talk a little bit about the myth of good opportunities. And I think, (laughs) especially in Western culture, we have a lot of opportunities. We we don't always have to make decisions between one bad thing and one good thing. So tell us a little bit about what you call the myth of good opportunities.
1: Well, I think, and just kind of what you said a minute ago about getting up with Jesus and being with him. And I I think the big secret that no one maybe either knows or is willing to admit is that the decisions are rarely the point. Mm. The point is union with God. And so when we try to make the decision the point, That's when we lose sleep. That's when we get really frustrated um, because we are making uh, the second thing the first thing. Um, But the first thing is union with God. And that comes in, that's in everything. And so when it comes to good opportunities, I I think the reason, I mean, that Listen, there are good opportunities in the world. So I don't want to poo poo like the fact that some things are great opportunities. But here's what I just want to point out and when we're making decisions, especially when it comes to like a specific decision about whether or not to do something, I- I'm just t- real tired of other people deciding for me what quant- quantifies a good opportunity. I-, I think that sometimes we have been, especially those of us who like have a fear of missing out or who might be, um, more relationally oriented or sort of wanting to impress or look good, those of us who have that tendency, a lot of times think every opportunity is a good opportunity just because other people would say it is. But the more we settle into our own rhythm of life and really know um, what our core values are, and as we walk with Jesus more and more, I I think that we, I just want to take back the ownership of deciding what a good opportunity is for me. And I, and I love encouraging other people to do that for them because something that would be a good opportunity for me, you might think is the worst thing ever, but you might be tempted to, to say yes to it because you know, so many other people, um, would think it's a great opportunity. I know that there are probably people listening who have just got an email or they just got a phone call or, you know, that they are wrestling whether or not, to say yes to something or no to something, you know? And I guarantee you a lot of the reasons sometimes why is because when you really get down to the question, it, it's like, well, we just don't, we're afraid we'll miss out. I'm afraid I'm going to miss out if I don't do it. Or what if, what if I say no? And then something really great happens while they're on that trip or at that conference or at that gathering, or what if I don't do it? And then the people who lead it, who, you know, they get really famous and, you know, like it, becomes this really successful thing. Um, And so sometimes those are the things that we base our decisions on, which is all external things, which sometimes is okay if you decide that's one of your values, if you decide that's something that is really important to you. But I, I just, I think I, All I want is to encourage people to take a second look at things that people tell you this is a great opportunity and really decide, is it really for me right now at the season of my life or is it really a glorified favor, which is oftentimes what it really is. That's so good. That's so good.
0: So let's kind of bring this home a little bit to. An opportunity that both you and I had that we could have thought, hmm, is this just something that everybody else thinks is a good idea, but I'm terrified of doing it. So we were both invited to go on a compassion trip to the Philippines. And I love, I kind of feel like our books are like little little book twins or something, because in in my (laughs) book, I talk about the Philippines trip. And in your book, you talk about the Philippines trip. So uh, for a little backstory for everyone, we were both invited to go Um, to the Philippines with Compassion International. And until I read your book, Emily, I had no idea that you had the same underlying fears about going as I did. Like I totally related and I actually read it out loud to my family and they laughed at me (laughs) about the sick thing about the fear of being sick in a foreign country. So let's, I would love for you to to talk a little bit about scary decisions and then the, the, the question that Sean Groves asked you that helped you in that
1: process well when you know this was back in 2010 or so, when i don't even know cat 2010 2011 <laughs> like and Kat. we were invited to go as you know as writers with compassion international to sort of see what um god was up to in the philippines um through this ministry and i had seen other other bloggers and writers go on this similar trips and so i it felt like a good opportunity um at the time. But I, I remember getting the email, the invitation. I remember crying immediately because I was like, great, now I'm going to have to do this. I didn't know. I couldn't even explain the tears at the time. I thought for sure the Philippines was like near Haiti. Cause I, you know, <laughs> right. That's where the Philippines is. So then I looked it up on the map. I mean, I was just, I'm not proud to admit that, but I didn't really know where the Philippines was. It's real far away, like Pacific ocean far away. And at the time I, um, I think I had been to Spain and that was But that's I mean, I live on the East Coast. So a flight over to Spain is, you know, is one thing. But the Philippines is a whole nother thing. And so I was really when I got down to it. And and I think there's this is important part of decision making is it's important to be specific about what you're afraid of. Mm. Be able to put it in English words and write it down in a sentence. And when I got down to the nitty gritty of what I was afraid of about this trip, yes, I was nervous about seeing a third world country. I was a little nervous to travel with people I'd never met. But the two core fears, number one, I was afraid to fly for over tw- you know 12 hours on an airplane. I'd never done that before. And I was afraid that when I got there, I would become sick as a dog and be totally uncomfortable and scared and anxious. And so I'm like, I don't want to throw up in the Philippines. <sighs> That's not what my life I don't want my life to be that. It was it was very <laughs> narcissistic. I'm laughing so
0: hard because I completely <laughs> relate.
1: <laughs> it's the worst. And so those two things like I mean, and I made it very, I mean, I knew better than to say those were the reasons, you know, it was more like, well, my kids are very young and I don't know if I could leave them. And, you know, like there were some legitimate things and listen, all of those reasons as far you know, would have been okay reasons to say no, like it's just not good timing. It's the busy time of my husband's job. And all of that was true. But I remember talking with Sean Groves, our trip leader on the phone and kind of going back and forth with his decision. And he said something I've never forgotten. And what he said was, Emily, there may be a lot of reasons for you to say no to this trip, but please don't let fear be one of them. And it was in that moment that I was like, oh, great. Now I'm going (laughs) like, because I couldn't come up with a reason that wasn't all wrapped up in fear. And that is a great um, marker. When you have a decision to make is ask yourself, am I being pushed by fear or am I being led by love? Is this from fear or from love? Because there are decisions I said, there are things I've said no to, and it's from a grounded place. It's from a, a clear headed place. And I just know it's not right, but this was not that time. And so I said yes. Now, would it have been wrong? I, I don't think this is a right or wrong thing. Mm-hmm. I think Jesus would have been with me whether I stayed home or whether I went. But this was an invitation, and it did feel like an invitation to move forward, even though I was afraid of these of flying and of getting sick. I think it was an invitation, and, and I'm so grateful that I said yes to it. But I still remember Cat like we literally met at LAX, yeah. all of our teammates. Hello, my name is <laughs> we got on a plane to Japan. And I remember you telling me, like, we just met and you said, I found that if I take really deep breaths, when I, it really helps, especially, you know, if you're nervous on a flight, and like, I was like, <gasps> <breathing, laughs> doing that, I remember looking back at you through the seats and thinking like, okay, well, She's she's my person now. And here we go into the you know wild blue sky. This the skyscraper on its side with wheels <laughs> and wings is going to fly through the air and it's not going to land for 12 hours. This is not normal. But off we went and we we were OK.
0: Well, you know, I am so glad that you made the decision to go. And I do remember if I remember correctly. The flight from Japan to the Philippines had some significant turbulence that almost caused me to hold the hand of the elderly Japanese man <laughs> next to me, which would have been very awkward, but I was I was <laughs> almost there. Almost there. <laughs> but I do remember getting off the plane in Manila. And I, I also want to mention I'm drinking out of my Manila coffee mug this morning in honor of you. Oh yay. Um I got we got off the plane. And for those of you who have not read my book or don't know my story go do that. It's free on the website. Download chapter one. You can hear why this is important to me. But getting off the plane and it is so emotional for me and being with all these people that I'd only just met the day before. And I remember walking um, up to the uh, what do you call it? The customs. Mm-hmm. And you said, I can only imagine how you know emotional this is for you to be here. And it meant so much to me. Like I knew that you were not excited about flying and <laughs> that you had just experienced, you know, flight, you know, drama, turbulence, whatever, super long flight, and that you had the presence of mind to think about what it meant for me to mm. be there. And that was just just going with strangers and then yeah. having somebody recognize what a big moment it was for me was very um, memorable for me and, and, and really just kind of helped me feel like I was not experiencing it alone. And so I'm glad that Sean shared that question with you and that you made the decision to go. So um, where can people get a copy of your book and check out your podcast?
1: Yeah, well, the book is, um, should be available wherever books are sold. Um, You know, you can find me at emilypfreeman.com. And also the book website is next right thing book, dot com. Um, and in the podcast, the next right thing podcast, it's all the next right thing, black and white. Um, you know, so yeah, you should be able to find it wherever there are books. Awesome. Emily, thank you so much for
0: being on the podcast today.
1: Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right. We'll talk to you
0: again soon. Well, I hope you enjoyed our chat with Emily today. And if you want the links to anything that we mentioned in the show today, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode over at hellomornings.org. And if you need more resources for your morning, be sure to check out the Hello Mornings book. You can download the first chapter for free at hellomornings.org forward slash book. My name is Kat Lee, and I am so glad that you joined us today. And I will see you next time on the next episode of the Hello Mornings podcast.
1: It's early in the morning, the house is quiet, but I've said... Aside this time for you, I bow before the throne of a noble king, and in this place my heart begins to sing. It's gonna be a good day, a good day filled with His grace, His grace and sweet new mercy.
0: This song is called God Day by Jen Stanbro. You can get your copy at iTunes, Amazon, or jenstanbro.com.